Good evening, Australia, and welcome. Hello to the rest of the world as well. Thank you for joining us on Under the Wire tonight, your home for censored and suppressed information about vaccinations and health. My name is Meryl Dory, and we have a very, very special guest joining us tonight, Dr. Peter McCullough. Um, I will introduce Dr. McCullough shortly, but there are a few things that we need to discuss first. I'll try and keep it as short as possible. So um, first, I want to show you a very quick video, and then I'm going to talk to you again after that. So bear with me one second, and we'll get this video going. My name's Captain Graham Hood, formerly of Qantas Airways, a 32-year command veteran. I gave up my job speaking my truth, and I did that so that you wouldn't lose your job for speaking yours. I'm drawing the line for my students who have had a line drawn for them already. Um, they've faced discrimination their entire lives because of their culture, their race, and their socioeconomic status, and I believe that this line needs to be redrawn, and that's I'm here for them. Hi there, I'm just drawing the line for freedom and I uh, really want to support the people here that are after the truth and uh, that the truth has not been told, so that's what it's all about. speaking my truth because I see that Aboriginal communities and Aboriginal people are currently being coerced with money to have a vaccination. I'm drawing the line because I'm a teacher. Today it's me, tomorrow it's you, the day after it's your children. Fight for your rights. I draw the line. This is the time when good men and good women will rise and the truth shall be known and it will set us free.
I'm Tom Barnett. I'd like to remind you that reclaiming the line starts with us. It starts from within here. When we reclaim our own line and remember our own core values, everything else can fall into place. I don't know how the rest of you feel watching that video. I was there. I was lucky enough to be there that day. And um, I've got to tell you that it was the most empowering and I can't even think. It was like the whole day was like a great big hug. Now, since that day, since that Reclaim the Line rally, a lot of things have happened in Australia and around the world. And what I'm going to say is that if freedom means as much to you as it does to me, and I think it does or you wouldn't be here, then you must come out this Sunday at 10 a.m. Queensland time, 11 a.m. New South Wales. There are going to be Reclaim the Line rallies called Unite in White in every state and territory of Australia. And we need each and every one of you watching this now. There is no excuse. I don't care if you've got a football game. I don't care if it's your daughter's birthday. You know, they can find the football game another time. The birthday can be celebrated the day before or the day after. We need to get together. We need to wear white t-shirts. We need to support each other. And we need to support freedom. Um, we are so close to pushing to victory, but we need to keep the pressure up. We really do. There are law cases that are going out all across the country right now. There are people standing up. They need us and we need them. So please make a note of that telegram channel t.me forward slash National Education United and you will be able to see all of the information about the various events. I'm going to be at the event at the Queensland-New South Wales border, which is 11 o'clock New South Wales time, as I said before, and 10 o'clock um, Queensland time. It is right across the street from the Tweed Heads, uh, I forget what it's called, Twin Towns, right across the street from Twin Towns. <laughs> Joe Bear, we're, we're pretty close to each other. <laughs> Um, yep, yeah, I'm not far from Byron, and uh, I'm going to be going to the uh, event at the Twin Towns at the border monument. So there's a big border monument. You would have seen it in that video, and that's where I'm going to be. Hello to Denmark. Hello to Lilienthal in, in Germany. Hello to all the people overseas, and hello to everyone who's in Australia. Raven, if you have nothing in white, come as you are. It doesn't matter. Um, Unite in White is what, we're, what the name of the event is, but it is more important for you to be there than it is for you to be wearing white. So please just go. Um, Sim, where is Newcastle at? Please check out that page. I think most of the events are not going to be giving the final uh, location until the night before. <laughs> hop shop for you Joe Bear says <laughs> um, until the night before or the morning of so oh Cheryl that's a dad joke I'm sorry where is Newcastle Newcastle is in Australia it's also in the UK but the, we're talking about the one in Australia right now 
So, um, yeah, Kathy, great to see you. I'm glad you're going to be there. Fantastic. Um, just bleach your shirt white if you don't have one. Um, Maz, I think your wife might have something to say if you did that. <laughs> um, so we aren't allowed in op shops. <laughs> dear, oh dear. Well, that's why we need to get out and unite in white. So I, I wanted to just let everybody know this is so important for the entire country. My heart is saying that we all need to do whatever we need to do to get there. So please, um, I don't know if there is going to be one in Brisbane. I kind of think that the Queensland and New South Wales are all meeting at the border. So I don't think there is one in Brisbane. Um, but I can't swear to it. Go to that Telegram page for more details. Again, it's National Education United. And thank you to everyone who's saying that they're going to be there. It is so important that we do it. And you will never regret it. You will never regret it. So, oh, thank you, Mary Rose, for sharing. That's wonderful. So I think there is one in Newcastle, uh, Jenny. So Central Coast is pretty close to Newcastle, I think. So uh, wherever it is, please get there. Please bring other people with you. Please let everyone you know. It's this Sunday, November 7th at uh, 10 a.m. in Queensland, 11 a.m. in New South Wales. Now, I have to give you some very quick information before I go to Dr. McCullough. Um, there has been a change to the Pfizer vaccine. Um, some of you may know that Pfizer is now going to be targeting children. I don't know if the final approval has come through yet, but it's only a matter of a rubber stamp for the TGA. In the United States, they have approved the jab for children as young as five years of age, all the way up to 11. They're already giving it to 12-year-olds uh, and up in Australia and in the U.S. Now, Pfizer has just changed the formulation of their emergency authorized uh, jab, which is not a vaccine, and they have um, actually, they have not studied this new formulation. It's just been changed. They've applied for um, an update to the EUA, the emergency use authorization, uh, and the TGA is probably just going to rubber stamp it like they do for everything that the drug companies do. And it is thought that the reason that this ingredient has been added to the jab, it's called Tris or um, Tromethamine. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, the reason that it's been added is because it is used as a stabilizer to help people who are in the throes of having a heart attack. Now, why in the world would they be adding that to a vaccine that's given to children? Um, and I'm sorry for any interruptions to the sound that's coming through right now. This will be up on Rumble, BitChute, and Brighty on tomorrow without interruptions. And I'm so sorry about that. There's nothing I can do about it. It's just Facebook showing us that they love us. So um, the reason that it is believed this has been added to the vaccine is because the vaccine is known to cause heart attacks and strokes. And therefore putting this in there may reduce the risk of heart attacks and strokes in five-year-olds. Five-year-olds. Unbelievable. So here is the application um, that Pfizer sent through to the um, FDA, the Food and Drug Administration in the United States, saying that they're adding this ingredient to the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine 
to improve stability, the stability profile. But there is absolutely no reason to include that uh, when they already had a buffer that's stabilized. Um, here is some information about trimethamine, and it cannot be frozen. It reduced the, the stability of the actual ingredient changes when it's frozen. Now, what temperature is the Pfizer jab stored at? It's about 60 degrees below zero. That's as frozen as you can get, basically. So we're using this ingredient that should never be frozen uh, in, a, in a jab that has to be frozen. In addition, it says that it should never be used intramuscularly. It should only be given into the vein. And yet, where are the Pfizer jabs being given? They are being given intramuscularly. So we don't know yet if this ingredient is being added to the jabs that are being used in Australia when we actually approve it for five-year-olds and up. But if they are, we need to find this out. And if they are, we need to find out why. And we also need to find out whether it's going to be considered normal for a five-year-old or a six-year-old to have a stroke or a heart attack within a short time of getting the jab. Uh, this, this is less than no duty of care. This is criminal negligence, and it really needs to stop, absolutely needs to stop. And yes, Wen said that on June 21st, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved Pradaxa, oral pellets to treat children three months to less than 12 years old with venous thromboembolisms. Now, venous thromboembolisms are unheard of in childhood and certainly at that age. Um, what, what can cause a venous thromboembolism is one of these jabs. And Esther said, what sort of parents allow their kids to be guinea pigs? The parents who don't know that their kids are guinea pigs. Do you think that they're being given informed choice? They're not. They're being told that this is what's going to keep their children healthy. And they're being lied to. They're absolutely being lied to. So um, if, you, if you will not take action when the government is trying to force you to take a jab in order to keep a job, in order to go shopping, in order to go to cafes, Will you stand up and take action when it is your child or your grandchild or your niece or your nephew who's being targeted with these jabs that can kill and injure millions? I hope that you will. And I hope that you will take whatever action is necessary at the right time when this happens. Uh, but in the meantime, I hope you will all join us this weekend, wherever you happen to be, at the Reclaim the Line rallies. Now, without further ado, thank you for bearing with me while I did that. Uh, without further ado, I'm going to be introducing Dr. Peter McCullough. Um, he is an amazing scientist and doctor. He is a brave, brave human who actually cares about his fellow men and women. Um, he has unimpeachable qualifications. Uh, the, the, the medical community is trying to attack him, and it's really hard uh, because this man has 700 publications in peer-reviewed literature, uh, 51 publications on COVID-19. He's the editor of two major peer-reviewed journals, the president of a major medical society, 
He has personally treated hundreds of patients who were diagnosed with COVID-19 and advised on thousands more. He um, has come out strongly in favor of early treatment instead of jabs, uh, which I just love. And he has had COVID himself, he says, as well as his wife, and they have treated it and they've come through fine. So um, without further ado, I just have to tell you a really funny story first because I actually did this as a pre-record this morning. And just as I was reaching to hit the record button on the screen, all the lights went out. It was a planned power outage. Um, and I had forgotten that we were having it. So I very quickly connected to my mobile phone, which generally doesn't give a very good connection, but thank God this morning it was okay. I ran out to the lounge room because there were no lights, so we couldn't see anything in the office. And Dr. McCullough was kind enough to wait for me. Um, the, the interview is slightly shorter than our normal interviews because of this, because he did have um, another interview to go to straight away afterwards. But that's why you'll see that I'm not actually in my under the wire bunker, but instead I'm sitting in a lounge chair. <laughs> so uh, without further ado, I will introduce you to Dr. Peter McCullough. Enjoy the talk. Dr. McCullough, thank you so much for joining us on Under the Wire. I really appreciate that. Um, I know a bit about your history from watching you on many, many interviews and many recordings, testimonies to Congress and various state um, senates and all kinds of uh, information that you've been giving out over this last year or so. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your background and why it is that you decided to actually uh, start to question what's happening in the country and around the world. I'm an academic internist, cardiologist. I'm a trained epidemiologist. So uh, this problem of COVID-19 as a global pandemic and crisis is really up my alley. It's really in my wheelhouse as an academic physician to handle from a data perspective. And also clinically, I just finished an entire day with patients. I was being called with patients as I came on the set. And uh, so the, the patient activity uh, that's going on with COVID-19, the acute respiratory illness, and now COVID-19 vaccination is a big part of internal medicine. It's a big part of family medicine. It's impacting clinics, hospitals, uh, and really all kinds of physicians and care providers all over the world. And that's the difference with you um, regarding COVID is that you are actually at the coalface treating patients where many of the people who are the decision makers in government have never treated a COVID patient, but you've treated hundreds of them. And um, your clinical uh, experience, I think, would be, you know, would put your information far and away ahead of Though that from people who simply have an academic interest in this. Um, what made you decide to start speaking out about this? Why did you say, I, I really need to come out and start questioning what's going on? Because it couldn't have been an easy decision uh, in medicine to st stand out against what is happening uh, in this situation. You know, I've, I, honestly, I didn't have any problems uh, managing the data. We've had drugs pulled off the market before. We've had, I've been involved in drug safety issues. I've chaired uh, many data safety monitoring boards. And it's really hard to come to a recognition point that a new biologic product uh, is not sufficiently safe to move forward in clinical studies. So it wasn't uh, hard or foreign to me at all. But with respect to the vaccines, uh, we knew the vaccines coming out of development in the spring of 2020 
created very strong antibody responses, but just to one part of the virus, the spike protein, the 1200 amino acid spine, or a little, uh, a little uh, spicule on the surface of the ball of the virus. Uh, it's 1200 amino acids, uh, several glycation uh, uh, attachments there, uh, gain of function, uh, re, uh, muta uh, mutation change right between the S1, the outer S1 and the inner S2 segment. But we knew the spike protein was where all the action was. In fact, that's uh, what's turned out to be the spike protein is really what causes all the disease and illness in COVID-19. Uh, and so sure enough, the, uh, you know, to be able to ra raise antibodies against the spike protein through vaccination looked very attractive. But, but what happened was we had used technology that was different. We didn't limit the spike protein exposure. What happened is all the vaccines, the messenger RNA and adenoviral uh, DNA vaccines, uh, caused the body itself to make the spike protein. So we trick human cells into producing now what's now understand is a dangerous Wuhan spike protein, the original wild type spike protein. In fact, the body's cells are called upon to produce the spike protein. That's very abnormal. We've never in the history of medicine uh, basically asked the human body to produce a dangerous externally derived foreign protein. Uh, we handle foreign proteins as invaders, as part of viruses and bacteria, but we've never actually tricked the body into making an abnormal foreign protein. And so this is a first time experiment in human beings and this turned out to be a disaster. We, we learned that early on, the vaccines looked pretty good. There was 90% protection against COVID-19 respiratory illness in the registrational trials. These were ahead less than 1% event rates in placebo and control. So hardly anybody was exposed to COVID-19. So it was really kind of a limited uh, exposure, uh, uh, registrational trial experience. Uh, the trials were uh, neutral on, uh, on hospitalization and death. So we knew it wasn't going to influence hospitalization and death, but there was great hope at least that the vaccines could limit spread from one person to another. Uh, but we started to hear news of vaccine failure through the uh, sp uh, spring of, of 2021. And now we're in a situation where we have effectively, we have wholesale failure in the United States of vaccines. And I think it's important for people to realize this. I don't want anybody out there uh, who has taken the vaccine. And we know that 80% uh, 80, uh, 80 of seniors and 60% of um, uh, uh, all adults that have taken the vaccine. So I don't want anyone here who's taken the vaccine to be falsely um, assume that they are protected because uh, here are the data. The, the CDC has reported to Americans through um, through October 18th of 2021 on their website, just go to the CDC website and you can get the report on this, that the CDC is reporting to uh, America that they have defined uh, vaccine breakthrough cases or vaccine failures very stringently. Uh, their definition is uh, someone has to be fully vaccinated, shot one, shot two, wait two weeks, uh, and then they have to get COVID-19. Uh, it has to be at a low cycle threshold, less than 28 uh, and then it has to be a confirmed case, hospitalized or died. So this isn't the universe of cases, but listen to this. October 18th, 2021, our CDC has 41,127 patients who have either hospitalized or died of COVID-19 who are fully vaccinated. Sadly, 85% of those are, are those over age 65, 66% of the deaths are, are, are the 85 percent of the deaths 66 percent of the hospitalizations are over age 65 and we have continued uh, information that the vaccines are in wholesale failure uh, these data just came in 
from the uh, UK, the 40, week 43 UK surveillance report. They have, uh, remember in the UK, they have a blend of Pfizer, Moderna, and the AstraZeneca vaccine. In the United Kingdom, age over 50, they have a range between 82 and 92% fully vaccinated. And sadly, in the UK, in that report, 81.8% of COVID-19 deaths now, weeks 39 through 42, are fully vaccinated. So we have large numbers of deaths, unfortunately, uh, among those who are fully vaccinated. And I'm so glad that you're calling it vaccine failure because the misnomer of calling it breakthrough, breakthrough makes it sound like the vaccine just, you know, did what it was supposed to do, but unfortunately there was a case. Those vaccines have failed. And when we see this over and over again, we're seeing the same thing in Australia. We've had four deaths this week in New South Wales, the state that I live in. Three of them had received one COVID jab and one person had been double jabbed. So, you know, when we see that the hospitals are filling up with people who have been vaccinated, I don't like calling it a vaccine because I don't consider it one, but um, when we see that the hospitals are filling up, that the case numbers are higher now in Australia than they were before the vaccine actually came out, we have to be asking, what is pushing this agenda? Why, I mean, we use an experimental jab. We use the entire population as guinea pigs and when the results are starting to emerge that the jab is not working, we continue to, to push this agenda of everyone needs to get jabbed. What is pushing this in your opinion? Yeah, well, I think it's important, you know, we haven't even gotten to safety yet, but it's important to understand that we have uh, data now that um, out, of, um, uh, out of Sweden, and this is uh, uh, very important for the uh, listeners to understand that um, you know, people have said, well, why are the vaccines failing? What, what, what is the genesis of vaccine uh, failure? And there's two points to this. One is the, the virus is mutated into the Delta variant, which is basically resistant. It's, it's achieved antigenic escape. And in a paper by Venkata Krishnan and colleagues, uh, they've clearly demonstrated that the mutations are sufficient uh, and this is a, a paper that arrived in preprint June 12, 2021. So we knew at the beginning of the Delta outbreak that the spike protein is sufficiently mutated and now it doesn't present the antigens for the antibodies to bind it, particularly the Pfizer vaccine. So fi Pfizer is actually uh, failing the greatest against Delta. It looks like Moderna, uh, which is uh, certainly different. It's a different product than Pfizer, has had held up with better vaccine efficacy than Pfizer. Johnson & Johnson is, has always trailed now Johnson & Johnson is recommended as a booster. But one of the things, just on efficacy, uh, you know, the governments have not given uh, the people of their countries a, a fair report on what's the best vaccine, right? So there should be some type of differential report. If one is asked to take a vaccine, it can't be any vaccine at this point in time. There's got to be a winner, a loser, so somewhere in between. And all the analyses that I've done, even with the earlier variants, it looked like Moderna was the winner in terms of efficacy. And I, I wonder at what point in time will our governments actually tell individuals if they have to take a vaccine, why, should, why wouldn't they take the best vaccine on efficacy? But by and large, none of them have enough efficacy uh, to, um, to be compelling. And this recent analysis from, um, from Sweden, I want to uh, cite that for your listeners and also the fact checkers. Any fact checkers listening right now, please fact check these citations. Make sure you 
emphasize them in your fact-checking report. Uh, this is a report from Peter Nordstrom and colleagues. It's a preprint in the Lancet, and it involves uh, 1,684,958 pairs of individuals, vaccinated and unvaccinated. What they showed is with Pfizer, this is a huge study, with Pfizer, Pfizer started out with um, about 92% protection and then over 210 days, it fell to 23% protection. It basically rapidly had dropped off. Moderna started out with 96% protection and it dropped to 69% protection at 180 days. So um, uh, this is uh, for the outcome of symptomatic infection, hospitalization and death over the course of nine months. So what we've learned is the vaccines, uh, because they, uh, they don't uh, protect against Delta nearly as well as the prior variants, the, vac the, the virus is mutated. And we're also learning that the vaccines don't last very long. There's not a single study now showing the vaccines can last um, uh, confidently past six months. So what this brings up is the issue of, uh, since none of the vaccines um, uh, have uh, uh, the same protection they had out of clinical trials, and none of them are lasting very long. Uh, when somebody does take a vaccine, are they committed to, in a sense, medical therapy on an every uh, three or six month or more frequent basis? For instance, the United States for immunocompromised people, a common class of immunocompromised patients would be those on uh, chronic steroid therapy, which is common for various uh, conditions. What I can tell you is the current schedule is, uh, is Pfizer. It would be shot number one at the beginning, a month later shot two, a month later, shot three, and then six months later, shot four. Do you know with each shot, the body is loaded with spike protein? So uh, it's completely loaded. And we now have a paper by Bruce Patterson and colleagues in preprint, July 29th. Fact checkers, please check check that. Um, uh, 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 Patterson uh, published the, uh, presented this at the Rome Summit meeting in mid-September. With the respiratory infection, the spike protein, the S1 segment is recoverable from human monocytes 15 months after the respiratory infection. No wonder people get long COVID syndrome. No wonder they feel bad. Can you imagine with the vaccine where the antibody response is even more against the spike protein? There must be so much spike protein loading the human body with each uh, vaccine injection. Uh, it's gonna take years to clear this out because it's 15 months on top of 15 months on top of 15 months. Uh, and, and so the, the great concern now that we understand all these revelations, and this basically has come into focus now in the last three months is that the vaccine programs are loading human beings with the Wuhan spike protein that's fully loaded with the gain of function research and the body can't clear this out. So this is now shown in autopsy studies to distribute to the brain, uh, the heart, uh, the other vital organs. Um, it, it damages blood vessels, causes blood clotting. I, I can't imagine the types of risks people are gonna have being put on a multiple injection schedule every, every let's say every six months or so. I, I think right now, it's a medicine doctor, I'm greatly concerned. I, I understand that and I appreciate it. And I do wanna to talk to you about vaccine safety, but before I go there, I wanna ask you one other question because to me, this is key to understanding what, what the, how the policies are created. Um, with any other disease, if you have already contracted it and recovered from it, you have immunity to it, especially viral illnesses, and that immunity is robust and long-lasting. Um, people who have recovered from COVID are being told they still need to take the jab. Um, is there any biologically plausible reason that you can understand why that would be the case? 
there's no credible evidence uh, that the infection can be acquired over and over again, even if, if one had the original wild type and now there's Delta or Alpha. Uh, there's no credible evidence of this. What there is is some confusion in the literature about false positive testing. So if someone has COVID-19, they can intermittently test positive down the line, and particularly with the PCR at high cycle thresholds for months afterwards. They, they, they don't get multiple infections. It's a one infection. And then there's, uh, then there's this test positivity issue later on. Uh, there's been some confused test results with the CDC methods of of influenza and COVID-19, so there's some confusion there. Uh, but I've reviewed the literature carefully, and I can tell you, um, uh, if anybody thinks there, there really is a bona fide second case, I'd I'd love to see it. All the ones that have made it into publication, in my view, are not valid because they just they don't have the evidence to show that one can get it twice. We know with SARS-CoV-1, which is 90% the same as SARS-CoV-2, the immunity has now lasted 17 years. This is not like the flu. I was in a discussion group uh, last night, and one of the doctors said, well, this is just like the flu. You're going to have to take the vaccine over and over again because the, the, um, you know, the virus is going to change. With the flu, what happens is called antigenic drift, and there are certain antigens um, on the, that's called the uh, uh, hemagglutinase and the aramidase and the flu. They antigenically drift, and they change over time uh, in kind of a slow manner sufficiently enough where we can actually change the vaccine. Here with COVID-19, because it's such a rapid uh, replication cycle and because so many people have it and the viral loads are so huge that, that there's explosive variants that move forward in response to the vaccine. So we've always had uh, a half a dozen or more variants in the background. What's happened is that with the vaccines, uh, the, the, um, the Delta variant has learned to thrive among the vaccinated. So no wonder it's 99% of everything we have. I mean, look at these countries like Israel and the UK. Everyone's taken the vaccine. It's pretty obvious the Delta variant has learned how to infect the vaccinated. And Luc Montagnier said that the variants are going to be emerging faster the more people who receive the vaccine. Um, I guess it's very much like antibiotics where you select for different variants through um, overuse of something. Yeah. That will well, we may that. have arrived there, though. I mean, just, uh, um, you know, d no two doctors can agree on everything. And, of course, Dr. Montier, he's won the Nobel Prize, so I have to be very careful about disagreement. <laughs> but I, I would just say, listen, uh, we, are, we already fully vaccinated, uh, let's say, in Israel and the U.K. and these fully vaccinated countries. Uh, we have Delta parked. That We don't have to worry about any new variants. Delta is 99% of everything we have because the vaccines haven't been changed to cover Delta. So I don't see any room for a new variant to come because Delta is just having an absolute picnic uh, in those who are vaccinated uh, because it's, it's learned uh, to escape the effect of the vaccines. Yep. Now, you say vaccines haven't changed because of Delta, but I have heard, and I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but that formulations, especially with Pfizer, have changed over time and that the EUA has not been edited to actually take that into account. Have you heard anything about that or no? No, I, I haven't. If they, if they changed a formulation, let's say, to protect against Delta, they'd have to show some data. And so far, we've just we went through the um, CDC meetings today, actually reviewing the data. All the data that's come forward since the registrational trials are still with the legacy variants. They're still with the Wuhan wild type, alpha, beta, and a little bit of gamma. There, there are no data. There are no data that the um, regulatory authorities have looked at with Delta. None. Okay. And in fact, we're loaded with Delta. That's all we have. So they're looking at 
data that are with obsolete strains of the virus. It's completely meaningless. All these FDA meetings about boosters, about children ages uh, 12 to 15, and now children's age 5 to 11, uh, they are completely obsolete. They don't apply because everything that people is getting right now is Delta. So what we needed is we needed randomized trials of new vaccines that are coded against the Delta spike protein. Uh, and they would, the, the companies would actually have to invent those vaccines. They would have to you know, write patents for those vaccines and then get them in clinical trials. They haven't. So what the companies have done is the companies have said, you know what, we're just going to give you another dose of the same stuff. And that's the reason why the boosters are failing. Why would they, you know, go to all that time, trouble and money of, of making new vaccines when the old vaccine is working, is working according to them and according to the government and is being pushed on everyone? There is no incentive for them to actually try to make these vaccines better because they're making money hand over fist. Now, you're talking about the expanding of the scheduled children, which we're having in Australia as well. Um, we've just, uh, our TGA, that's the equivalent of the FDA in, the, in Australia, has just um, said that we're going to be vaccinating 5 to 11 as well. Um, let's talk about the safety aspects of this jab. And let's talk about the fact that the only answer to this question of COVID is vaccination when there is a great deal of evidence and a great deal of information about early treatment um, being safe, effective, and you know, reducing hospitalizations, reducing deaths, much more than any vaccination that's been introduced ever has. Well, let's pick up on vaccine safety, and we want um, this interview to, to be precise in quoting the data. So um, we, we have in the U.S., we have the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. In the U.K., you have the uh, Yellow Card System. And what's your system in Australia? It's called DAEN, the Database of Adverse Event Notifications. Okay, DAEN. So you have three systems. In the, in the UK, you have the UDRA system. Let's give the US data because I'm looking at them. I want your listeners to hear them. We have about 180 million Americans who have taken the vaccine, about 180 million. And through October 15th, we've had 818,042 safety reports that have permanent VAERS numbers by the system. Roughly half of our reports are domestic. They occur actually in the United States proper. And then half come through various reporting systems that rely on the US uh, and the pharmaceutical companies uh, field these in. We know from prior studies, one from a, a pediatric report, that about 14% of these are self-reported by the patient themselves or their family members. And 86% of the time, they're reported by doctors, nurses, coroners, other people who, who think the vaccine is related or the, the, the pharmaceutical manufacturers who also are concerned. Uh, so what we have through this date is we have 17,128 deaths. We have 83,412 hospitalizations, uh, 92,017 urgent care visits. Uh, we have, uh, astonishingly, uh, we have 10,304 cases of myocarditis or pericarditis. Uh, that's the concern in the children. We really haven't started ramping up in children yet, and we have a very high number. Uh, we have 26,199 permanently disabled people after the vaccine. We basically have an entire new disease class of vaccine-injured individuals. 
And, and those numbers, according to the Harvard Pilgrim study, would only represent between 1% and 10% of the true numbers because it is a passive reporting system. So as, as horrendous as those figures are, it would only be the tip of a very large iceberg. Um, and we have the same situation in Australia, and I know the UK also uses a passive um, reporting system. So I, I remember... I mean, I was young at the time, but I remember the 1976 swine flu campaign, and that was called off after, I believe, 40 deaths were reported in the United States, and uh, there were about 1,200 cases of Guillain-Barre. So why is it that this incredibly strong safety signal is not leading to any questions about whether or not we should continue this campaign? Well, I've presented to America and actually in a whole series of symposiums uh, that have been live and actually on the Internet, gosh, that involve, you know, Arizona, Mississippi and Texas and Oklahoma and Nebraska, that uh, a proper data safety monitoring board would have stopped the U.S. program, uh, I think, after the January 22nd report. On January 22nd, we had 182 deaths. And that would have exceeded the expected 158 deaths for the whole U.S. vaccine program per year at a much higher number of shots. So at 27.1 million Americans, 182 deaths, that would have caused a day safety monitoring board to have an emergency meeting. And I think the program would have shut down in February. And the reason why it hasn't is there's no data safety monitoring board. There's no human ethics board and there's no critical event committee. So we actually don't have the safety structures in place to stop the program. Right now, the, the uh, uh, CDC and the FDA, they're the sponsors of the program. Normally, the FDA is the watchdog, but instead of being the watchdog, they're actually being the promoter, the implementer. The CDC is normally an outbreak data organization. Now they're actually a vaccine uh, execution program uh, organization. So we actually have the wrong um, public health agencies in the United States uh, plunging forward with the program, and we don't have the external advisors to shut it down in the numbers, as I've read, they've run up to astronomical uh, levels. And and uh, in Jennifer Rose, in a paper published uh, September 2021 in the Science, Public Health Policy and Law, uh, she basically points out that the VAERS system is an early warning system and our agencies didn't respond to the early warning. That was the problem. The problem isn't VAERS. The problem is the lack of response to VAERS, that our agencies continue uh, despite plunging forward. There's been analyses now by Rose and McLachlan. Uh, they have shown for death, for instance, the, the most important outcome, 50% of the deaths occur within two days after the shot, 80% within a week, strongly related to them, uh, highly related to age. We know that our seniors are disproportionately affected. 86% of these deaths have no other explanation. And sadly, the highest death group with the vaccine is those over age 85. And then it stair steps down in every five-year increment. So the, the very individuals we tried to protect with the vaccine, in fact, are dying with the vaccine, and the vaccine isn't protecting them. So it's the worst overall picture for our seniors. And as you pointed out, our agencies seem to be ignoring our seniors right now, and they're absolutely, in almost a perverse way, they're preoccupied with children. Children are not on the radar screen because they don't have high mortality rates with COVID-19 or high hospitalization rates. Uh, and, the, and the vaccines applied to them are, are basically taking our eye off the ball. Uh, we still have seniors who are getting sick with COVID-19. But that, can that whole situation can shift because as we get more and more 
children and young adults getting this jab, we may see a higher death rate in that uh, age group. Now, I want to talk to you as a cardiologist about myocarditis and pericarditis. Um, these are both conditions. Now, I have been told, and I don't know if this is the case, that both of these, when they've been diagnosed, it means that you have permanent damage to either the heart itself or the pericardium around the heart, that there is no, no such thing as mild myocarditis or mild pericarditis, that it is a sign of, of permanent damage. Is that the case? Well, let me just address your comment that you tailed off with about the trade-off. Um, the the uh, U.S. FDA now on two occasions in September and now October have heard these analyses, and I want your listeners to make a note on this, fact-checkers as well. Uh, uh, the first paper is by Kostoff and colleagues. It was published in Toxicology Reports. The title of the paper is Why Are We Vaccinating Children Against COVID-19? And the analysis showed that uh, it's an unfavorable trade-off meaning that a child uh, and even an adult is more likely to die of the COVID-19 vaccine than they are taking their chances in getting COVID and dying of COVID. It doesn't even assume that we can treat COVID, which we can. Uh, there's probably about a five times greater chance of dying with the vaccine than taking your chance of getting COVID-19 and dying with COVID-19. So even though people have made a big deal in the United States of unvaccinated in the hospital, um, those people who actually did that you know, deferred on the vaccine, they've actually made a smarter choice than the upfront risk of death with the vaccine. And now with the myocarditis, as you pointed out, we have a very a strong information uh, coming in. We had a paper by Evolio and colleagues uh, that came into preprint now uh, uh, in the last few months, uh, July 20th, 2021. The title of the paper is that the spike protein disrupts human cardiac parasite function directly. So we now know the spike protein independently is itself directly damages the heart. Uh, it damages cells around the cardiomyocytes. Uh, almost certainly it's expressed on the cell surface of the pericytes. It damages small blood vessels within the heart. The endothelium uh, probably causes micro blood clotting. And then in a really dramatic paper that was published on August 30th by Tracy Hogan colleagues, University of California at uh, Davis in Sacramento, the title of the paper is SARS-CoV-2 messenger RNA vaccination associated myocarditis in children. And she looks specifically age 12 to 17. And here we have data that point out exactly what you said. This isn't mild at all. There, there is basically, I told you, there's thousands of cases now in the United States. 86% of these teenagers are hospitalized, are hospitalized. This is shocking. It takes a lot to hospitalize a 17-year-old uh, a teenager I'm telling you, they had chest pain, signs and symptoms of heart failure. They had elevations in cardiac troponin, which are dramatic, dramatic EKG changes. Probably a quarter, we knew from the CDC review, had the early signs of heart failure. I've seen these cases as a cardiologist. They are severe. Uh, they are, we take them very seriously. And the level of troponin elevation we're seeing is so high. I agree with you. I think some of this cardiac damage, while it may not be reflected in the cardiac echocardiogram, I'm worried long-term that this cardiac damage um, may be um, uh, much more sustained. And certainly with additional shots, don't forget, it's not just one-time vaccination. Yeah. If these children are now receive a vaccine, a second or third shot, I can't imagine anybody would do this after a case of myocarditis, uh, but I've heard of this, um, that in fact, we'd even have more heart damage. What Hogue showed is that, again, for a child, they're more likely to be hospitalized with myocarditis 
than they are to be hospitalized with COVID-19, the respiratory illness. So this is a very unfavorable trade-off. It's much worse for uh, boys than girls. Uh, it's explosive after the second shot of messenger RNA. And in the Hogan analysis, uh, there probably is at least 50% more cases than what the CDC originally estimated back in June. And that's the reason why we've had such an explosive rate of myocarditis. So I'm, I'm very worried as a cardiologist as we begin vaccination of children. Remember the, uh, the uh, FDA and the CDC that just opined on children ages 5 to 11, they have not reviewed any of the safety data that you and I have just reviewed. The, in the FDA meetings, they have not reviewed the VAERS data at all or taken that into consideration regarding public safety. And I saw the ACIP meeting where they were talking about this and one of the, uh, one of the people who was considering uh, approving this vaccine said, well, we, we really won't know if it's safe for children until we administer it and that's just the way it goes. And the idea that someone could be so blasé about the health of children against a, a, an infection, which they really don't have any risk from, um, is, is beyond belief. And you're right. Uh, I, I'm just going to show this image very quickly. This is from the UK. It's the side of a bus. Um, they're trying to normalize the, the incidence of things like strokes in children. Kids have strokes too. Know the warning signs. I mean, do we have a background incidence figure from prior to this of things like strokes and heart attacks and, and heart conditions, myocarditis, pericarditis in children before this? And is there any way to compare whether it's increased since the jabs have been added into the schedule? Well, there's no doubt about it. There's been plenty of analyses. Uh, there's an analysis by Rose uh, and myself that's was fully published in the current problems of cardiology and now uh, Elsevier five days before the pediatric meeting has uh, uh, attempted to censor it. So now Elsevier will uh, be uh, under a, 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 um, a basically a lawsuit uh, filed against them for trying to censor a fully published contracted and paid for uh, publication and you know cited in the National Library of Medicine. This is unprecedented. The comment that Dr. Rubin made who said we're not going to know about safety unless we just try it in the children. He was on the advisory panel and he's the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. So I'll take my editorial position. I'm the editor of a major journal and I'm going to tell your listeners what Dr. Rubin said is reckless, it's irresponsible, and it's reprehensible as an academic physician. I think uh, uh, the historians will write about that shameful statement as children now are harmed with the vaccine. Uh, that those words uh, recorded in the minutes of the FDA meeting will go down in history. That, that, that's going to fall along the same types of uh, bioethics uh, uh, discussions that we have regarding the, the, uh, the, the Nuremberg trials and Nazi research being done, uh, as well as the Tuskegee experiments that were reported in the Belmont report. We, these will go down in medical ethics histories, these types of statements that come lack of care, uh, a lack of concern about children. I've told Americans on national TV for months now, no one under age 30 under any condition should consider one of these vaccines. And I said that long before we knew about myocarditis. Why? Because uh, th in younger individuals, it's a very mild infection. Uh, you know, there's, there's um, about the same number of children who die of influenza each year 
that have died with COVID-19. This is basically a statement of just lack of, of care and, and kind of bad socioeconomic status and lack of early treatment. COVID-19 is very easily treatable in young individuals. It's nothing like the infection we see in our seniors. We should always keep our eye uh, on the seniors. Those are the ones affected with COVID-19. That's where all the discussions should be. In my clinical practice, that's where my focus is. The children now, there's some estimates now, believe it or not, 80% of children probably already immune. So we're just gonna be trying to vaccinate children who are already immune and we're gonna be asking for trouble because we know when we vaccinate a naturally immune individual, all we do is cause complications and there's no benefit. Yep, absolutely. And you know, you are talking about those early treatments that are accessible and available in the United States and they are not in Australia. The government has actually criminalized the use of ivermectin off-label. Um, and Thomas Barodi, one of the main doctors who started studying ivermectin, he's Australian, and he has shown all of this study and information about this, and the government has criminalized its use off-label, and monoclonal antibodies, which have been used with great success in the United States, have only been approved on the 20th of August in Australia, and most doctors don't have access to them. It's almost as if um, the government is trying to block access to anything that might interfere with someone's use of a vaccination. But let me comment though, um, I don't want the listeners to think that um, criminalizing one or two drugs can stop early treatment. Dr. Brentios in South America and then Dr. Chetty in South Africa have clearly shown that we can treat COVID-19 without hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. So Australians should demand monoclonal antibodies, demand them. Uh, every Australian should make some calls to their hospitals and local emergency rooms and figure out which ones stock the monoclonal antibodies, be ready to demand that treatment. Australians should demand other treatment outside of hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. Uh, Australians uh, should demand uh, the use of uh, doxycycline, azithromycin, uh, cyproheptadine, montelukast, uh, uh, inhaled budesonide, oral prednisolone or dexamethasone or hydrocortisone, oral colchicine, and then importantly, using full dose aspirin. Uh, as, and then the oral novel anticoagulants, apixaban, um, rivaroxaban, uh, dabigatran, or um, the use of low milk weight heparins. That's a lot of medical terms out there, but I'm telling Australians that your doctors can and should prescribe for you what we call sequence multidrug therapy for COVID-19. These are standard uh, uh, protocols. Uh, I've published the two most widely used ones in the United States in 2020. And then the Frontline Critical Care Consortium has also published their protocols, uh, very similar, but different ranges of drugs. Uh, there are so many different ways to treat COVID-19. Please don't think it completely depends on ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. In fact, it's liberating to learn that we don't need to use them. So let me just tell Australians what they can have in their cabinet at home to help them protect against COVID-19. Don't need a doctor for this. Don't need the TGA. Um, everybody should have betadine which is povidone iodine. That's the iodine sterilizing solution we use on wounds. Uh, that betadine, it comes in a plastic bottle. Everyone should have it. Two teaspoons of betadine, six ounces of water, gargle it, spit it out, get a nasal spray bottle, spray it up the nose and out. And when you go outside, when Australians go outside, come in contact with someone else, they come home, they ought to do it probably about twice a day for having contact. Days you don't leave the house, you don't have to do it. If you ever get exposed to COVID-19, it can be done four times a day. And then with early COVID-19, incipient COVID-19 illness can do it every four hours in a randomized trial by Chowdhury and colleagues. It's abortive. 
it aborts the infection about 75% of the time. So betadine, very important. If there's iodine sensitivity or pregnancy, we can actually use dilute hydrogen peroxide with a little glucose iodine. Uh, those are the two lead solutions. But we need oral nasal decontamination. Australians have been focusing on hand sanitizer. It's not a hand infection. It's an infection in the nose and mouth. And so we actually need to treat the nose and mouth and people getting exposed to COVID-19. What else can Australians do? They can use nutraceuticals and supplements at a base. We're talking zinc, 50 milligrams of elemental zinc, vitamin C when acutely ill, 3,000 milligrams, vitamin D, 5,000 international units preventively, and then 20,000 units acutely when acutely ill, and then quercetin or quercetin, 500 milligrams uh, once a day preventively, 500 milligrams twice a day in active treatment. They can also use an over-the-counter antihistamine, but it slows down viral replication. It's called famotidine. Famotidine, uh, 80 milligrams a day. You may recall that former President Trump was treated with famotidine as yes. with, with monoclonal antibodies. Uh, these are things all Australians should have aspirin. They should have full dose, 325 milligram aspirin. That's the US dose. The Italians are using 700 milligrams a day. So I want Australians to know there's a lot they can do. Have a good medicine cabinet. Uh, anybody over age 50 is at risk for hospitalization and death. Clearly seniors over 65 uh, certainly are. Australians ought to be ready uh, to prevent and then treat COVID-19, even if the TGA and the authorities are working against them. Because remember, the vaccines don't work. And so those who are Australians who are vaccinated, they're going to get COVID-19 as easily as someone who hasn't taken the vaccine. Absolutely. I, I know that we're running out of time. You have another interview coming up. I did want to ask you one question because I respect so much the fact that you are speaking out about this. Um, have you suffered any consequences as a result of your honesty on this issue and your integrity in standing up um, against what is happening here? You know, I've told many uh, media uh, uh, personnel, they, they ask me that question a lot, media personalities and others. I've actually never had a direct challenge. I've never had somebody sit down and have a conversation with me and say they disagree on vaccines, or they disagree with me on early treatment. Never. Uh, there's never a director of the uh, COVID early treatment fund. Uh, he's offered $2 million to anybody who would just sit down in a round table and have a discussion about vaccine safety and efficacy. Let's say someone who's supporting the vaccines, no one will come and collect $2 million. Steve Kirsch has said anybody who's willing to write up a paragraph about what the CDC, FDA, or NIH, and it could apply to the TGA, if you will, what they've done correctly, and he'll pay them a million dollars. Who wouldn't write up a paragraph and no one's come forward? So I can tell you, uh, those who have a different point of view they must not feel very confident in them. I, and I think people are in many ways ashamed of what's going on. They're fearful. They're, they're, they feel ashamed of themselves. They feel as if the, the vaccine is only, the only thing they can do. They can do it, but they, they don't want to engage in any type of discussion or review of the data because it, it's so clear that the vaccines uh, don't work well enough and certainly are not safe enough for human use. And even the evidence-based consulting group in the United Kingdom agrees. They're the principal consulting group to the World Health Organization. They've issued a formal report to the MHRA in England saying the vaccines are not fit for human use. Go ahead and take them off the market. Now, you asked about reprisal and other things that's happened. Uh, it recently, you know, it's interesting. When I, I testified in the Texas Senate, I was fact-checked maliciously by a French reporter 
Like, why would a French reporter care about what's going on in Austin, Texas? And then on another U.S. Uh, testimony, I was fact-checked by a Hong Kong reporter. Why would they wow. Hong Kong care about <laughs> what's going on in the United States? And now we've learned that the fact-checkers are all traced to vaccine stakeholders. So they're basically just operatives trying to promote the vaccine and trying to discredit U.S. scientists and doctors who are who are basically investigating and leading the charge on early treatment and giving proper analyses and concern about vaccine safety and efficacy. I'm laughing because almost every interview that I do, they go up on Facebook and within 24 hours, they're covered by a badge that says um, false information. This has been fact-checked. And if you click on the fact-check, it's usually the Associated Press or the um, News Limited, it's some media company that has been the fact checker. And all the media companies are totally vested in the pharmaceutical industry. So why in the world would Facebook use them for fact checking unless they have an agenda to push? And it, the agenda is so obvious and so blatant. So um, good on you for doing that. Uh, I know we're out of time, but is there anything very quickly that you'd like to add before we finish up? I definitely want to speak with you again next year, but um, is there anything else that you'd like to add that we haven't covered that you think is important? Yeah, I just want the senior citizens in Australia to realize COVID-19 is treatable early. Uh, get an early test, demand early treatment, get all the home supplies that I've reviewed today, get into COVID-19 prevention and early treatment mode, demand the monoclonal antibodies, uh, the corticosteroids, the other critical drugs, and really work to avoid hospitalization and death. Hospitalization is a step down in care. Uh, the only reason to really go to the hospitals for the mechanical ventilator, do you know the contemporary mortality in the United States for people in the ICU and in clinical trials and observational studies, still 30%. Wow. It's too high. The hospital's too late. For the rare Australian that gets COVID-19, a senior citizen, demand early treatment. For everybody else, I think the, the real challenge now at this point in time is avoiding the vaccines. It's clear the vaccines offer more harm than benefit, and people are doing anything to avoid the vaccines. You know, in the United States, they're protesting. Uh, they are doing, they're, they're uh, fighting against mandates uh, because they know the vaccines will cause harm. They know there's not enough benefit of the vaccines. And people are willing to walk off the job because they, they know they don't want to die and they don't want to be hospitalized or permanently disabled. That's really basically what they're being presented with. These are all very rare events. By the way, having anything go wrong with the vaccine is rare. Getting COVID-19 is rare. So it's hard for the human mind to calculate rare events. I would say on a positive note, those who took the vaccine early because we didn't know about the safety back, back then, I'm not seeing the late emergence of many syndromes. I recently saw in my clinic a late emergence of a, of a serious blood clot syndrome about six months after a Johnson & Johnson vaccine. That's about the latest I've seen. So I think one or two jabs and no harm, no foul, just don't take any boosters. I think we're, I think, I think people are going to come out of it okay. People in my family took the vaccine and the majority of my patients took the vaccine. Um, I think uh, one or two jabs, no harm, no foul if there's been no side effects. Um, now, I'm really concerned about uh, boosters. If we get into a booster program and we continue to load the body over and over again at every six-month interval boosters, the spike protein will accumulate in the human body now. I can tell you that as a doctor and a scientist, and it's going to be impossible to catch up with that and clear it out. The spike protein we know is disease-causing. And when we get into a booster program, the probability of large-scale chronic diseases emerging is very high. We've started that in Australia just yesterday. One of our ministers for health has said that look at the top of your vaccination um, certificate 
uh, that date, six months after that date, you are due for your next jab. And the government has bought enough jabs, they've contracted to buy enough jabs to give every Australian 10 doses of the vaccine. So, um, yeah, it's, it is, and we have the same mandates. We are having major protests across the country this Saturday, uh, this Sunday, sorry, um, against, it's called Reclaim the Line, because we want to make sure that people still have the right to work, even if they choose not to vaccinate. So um, I think it is a worldwide movement that, um, that is happening now, and I hope and pray that it will be successful in preserving our rights. Everybody should have the right to decide what happens with their body and everybody should have the right to know the information that you're sharing today. Dr. McCullough, I wanna thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us and, um, and for the work that you're doing in the United States. It's absolutely vital. Thank you again. I appreciate thank it. Thank you. All right, you take care. Thanks a lot. Sorry, I hit the wrong link there. I normally don't come back after the interview's finished, but a, <clears throat> pardon me. A lot of people have asked for the uh, list of uh, things that he suggested and the quantities. Um, I had already planned on writing to him when I have this up on Rumble, Bitshoot, and Brighteon tomorrow and getting that list from him and also getting the list of references to the articles that he had mentioned. He does talk very quickly, and I'm from New York, and I've got to tell you, he talks really fast. But um, he, he has so much information that he really packs it in there. Uh, I, I personally don't agree with everything that he says, but I agree 190% with what he says about our rights and how it is that the vaccine is simply not working and is more dangerous than it should be. So um, everybody, if you can bear with me, I will write to him tomorrow. He's been amazingly great at responding. So I will make sure that when I send him the links to the videos online, that I'll ask him for that list and he'll probably um, get it off to us in the next day or two. So keep looking at the website. Thank you all for all of your incredibly kind comments too. And I've just, a lot of people were asking about what time or what location the Reclaim the Line rally is going to be on on Sunday. Uh, I can only tell you about Queensland, which is at the Border Monument, right opposite the Twin Town Services Club, uh, right at the New South Wales and Queensland border. But please make a note, <clears throat> I'm losing my voice, please make a note of this Telegram channel, um, which is National Education United, all one word. They will have all of the information. Join the channel and um, ask them when the uh, rallies are going to be and where they're going to be. And you know what? If you don't have a rally in your area and you want to go to a rally, organize it. We are all volunteers. We all do this in our spare time. <laughs> I'm laughing because there's no such thing. But, um, you know, if you, if you want a rally and there isn't one, do it, you know, just organize it. It doesn't take any special talent or any experience. Just talk to a few people and it doesn't need to be hundreds of people, though it would be really nice if, if the big rallies had tens of thousands. I fully expect to see at least 10,000 at the border, especially considering I think that the people from Brisbane will be coming down there. Uh, Melbourne, I expect to have 50,000, Sydney 50,000, Newcastle at least 5,000. So, you know, people get out there and come to the rally and 
Susan, I'm going to hopefully post the list of the remedies that uh, Dr. Uh, McCullough spoke about on the page with his interview on our website. So um, it'll be on our website, which is avn.org.au. Click on the blog um, link at the top of the page, and all of the Under the Wires are in the blog section. We also have an Under the Wires section, so you can find it in both places. So uh, I, I just, I you know what, Joan? I don't think we need Novavax because um, I don't think that any vaccine will actually be preventative because the basis upon which they're based that um, that the development of antibodies is protective, we know is wrong. So there is no such thing as a safe vaccine. There is no such thing as an effective vaccine. Um, there are vaccines that are safer than others, but none of them actually prevent disease. And I, I say that without fear or favor. If anybody wants to challenge me on it, go for it. I will be very happy to speak with anyone um, about this issue. Prove to me that a vaccine that develops antibodies can actually prevent infection with a virus or a bacteria, or for that matter, with a parasite. Um, and I will gladly admit that I'm wrong, but in 30 years, I have never yet found one piece of evidence that a vaccine can ever prevent a disease. And every single vaccine uh, can poison and, and harm and even kill people. So we need to be aware of that. Novavax is not going to be any better than any of the other jabs. It may be slightly safer um, because it's more of an old type vaccine, but it is not going to prevent coronavirus. And to be honest with you, I've still never seen any evidence that COVID-19 exists as a as a, you know, that SARS-CoV-2 exists as a virus or that COVID-19 is any different than influenza um, or the common cold, depending on the severity with which it's uh, expressed in people. So, um, yeah, I, I, again, Gay, I just don't think that vaccines are the answer to any question. Um, I think that vaccines are uh, an old form of science that is based on superstition and not on fact or evidence. So it doesn't matter which type of vaccine. And, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't be allowed to take it if you want it. You go ahead and take it. You do your research, and if you think it's going to be good for you, go ahead and do it. But for me personally, after having researched this for a long time, the basis of vaccination is false. Antibodies do not equal immunity. They only equal exposure. They show that everybody who's been vaccinated um, has been exposed to a disease, and they've also been exposed to all of the toxic ingredients in the vaccine. And for that risk, there is no benefit because vaccines can never immunize. So everybody who's vaccinated is still susceptible to the disease they're being vaccinated against. So uh, it's not a matter of which vaccine is better. It's a matter of how do we actually make ourselves healthy enough that if we do contract an illness, whether it's COVID-19, influenza, uh, anything like this, if we contract it, how do we come through it without having any serious uh, long-term consequences? And that has nothing to do with vaccinations, and I believe it has nothing to do with drugs. It has everything to do with your diet, 
your your um, living conditions, your point of view, and perhaps supplementation as well when needed because our soils are not good and our food is not good. So, I mean, to me, vaccines and most pharmaceutical drugs are, I won't even say a last resort because I don't think that they're even in the ballpark for me. But a lot of people take them and a lot of people, you know, feel that they're necessary. And I think that we all have that right to, to make those choices ourselves. So, yeah, Maz, trace mineral, <clears throat> trace mineral, hang on, <laughs> vital nutrients and vitamins. These are all things we can get from our diet. And if we can't get them from our diet, because, for instance, selenium is very low in our soils, then supplementation is is one of the things um viv yes this will be this uh, viv is asking if she can listen and save this interview to replay to family um there is an actual piece of software i've got it on my computer and if you think i can remember what it's called i don't know but it allows you to download facebook videos but um, it's probably going to be off of Facebook or blocked on Facebook within 48 hours. So tomorrow, go and look at the AVN website and you'll see it there. Hey, Sally Ann, good to see you here. Um, and yeah, I know, it's uh, there's people from all over the world, which I love. And thank you for joining the show. Um, and Mary said, Mary Rose says she has a distiller and then adds trace elements. I'm really lucky because we have rainwater tanks um, and we've also got a bore. So we've always got beautiful water. But uh, yeah, for those who don't. And yes, Brazil nuts are a great source of selenium. But make sure that your Brazil nuts are A, organic and B, not grown in Australia. Because even the Brazil nuts that are grown in Australia, they're very low in selenium. If you want good Brazil nuts, you need... Um, to source them from overseas, sadly. Um, and so, yeah, eating, eating Brazil nuts is a great option. Most of the nutrients that we need in our diet, we can get in our, in our bodies, we can get from our diet. Um, and, and that's something we need to be aware of. Supplementation for me is for when there's an, a situation, um, where you need something extra and, uh, yeah, it's it's not something to take all the time as far as I'm concerned. But, uh, yeah, it's one of those things. Um, oregano oil and turmeric root all available at health shops. Uh, oh, okay. Judy is asking for the AVN website. I can't type in here. And I'm sorry, I normally do respond to a lot of things while... The pre-record is going on, but Facebook was not allowing me to do that. Um, the, the web address is avn, that's a for apple, v for victor, n for november, dot org for organization, dot au. Don't put a www in front of it. Just type avn.org. au. And hi, Fred. Good to see you from the Philippines also. Um, thank you. Thanks for that. Um, Quercetin can be found. Now, for those people who did not view my interview with uh, Peter Dingle, Dr. Peter Dingle, who's a toxicologist, I just spoke with him a few days ago, I recommend that you do because he talked a lot about all the foods we can eat to get these things, oranges um, and, and all kinds of things. Uh, Holly is saying quercetin can be found in foods like apples, onions, 
grapes and berries, plenty of antioxidant properties. Exactly. Um, so we need to actually make sure that we are getting, oh, Mary Rose, thank you. Mary Rose posted the link to the AVN website, so that's it. And uh, ABC, the most corrupt media now. You know what, Atticus, I think they, they're all corrupt, all the mainstream media, absolutely corrupt. And Maz also posted the link. Um, thank you so much for that, Maz. Everybody's posting the link, which is great. <laughs> so I, I know that I just wanted to come back up and let people know that I will be getting that list from um, Dr. McCullough. Wasn't he amazing? And uh, that I really hope to see as many people as possible at the Hold the Line Unite in White rallies on Sunday. Okay, and there will be another Under the Wire on Sunday night. Um, and, and I really can't thank you all enough for coming here and supporting uh, this, this show. Without you coming as viewers, we would not be doing this. So don't ever underestimate the importance of you coming here and sharing the information and learning. Uh, we are all learning every day, and I learn so much from the people I interview, and I learn so much from the people who are on this show. Oh, yeah. Megan Bishop said, I live in the UK, and some of the kids are dying actually at the schools from heart attacks after the jabs. Megan, there was a video the first day that they were giving um, the jabs to 12-year-olds uh, in New South Wales, our uh, minister for... I can't call him a minister for health. Our minister for sickness uh, bragged about how they were going to vaccinate 23,000 children in stadiums um, in Sydney that week. And someone took a video of two children having seizures on the floor immediately after getting the jab. And we were told that two of them died. But the parents were threatened with legal action if they actually spoke out about it. Um, yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Uh, thank you, Joe. I'm not sure who you're referring to, but I'm assuming someone was asking about a rally near them. And you're right. Anybody who wants a rally near them, if there isn't one, they need to start one. And Susan, thank you. I am the luckiest person in the world because I get to speak to the most amazing, wonderful people. So um, thank you for, for noticing that I do get the best guests. And um, I'm already... I'm already booking guests in for 2022, scary to think of that, but uh, 2022, we are going to be taking a break in December up until the beginning of January, but uh, we're back in January and we're already booking some incredible guests in, and uh, I'm going to be adding a few extra events in before the end of November and in that first week of December. I want to speak with Liz from Open Vares. I spoke with her a few months ago. And uh, for those who don't know, Open Vares is the uh, website. It's openvares.com, and they've got the red box data for COVID. And uh, it's you can see the COVID data, the death data, and the reaction data there uh, in a way that nobody else shows it. And I want to talk to her about what they've been seeing in the United States uh, regarding reactions. Um, so I'm not sure there's any other questions but yep Emily has just listed a, um, a, a bunch of political parties I just want to point that out because we could have elections coming up in the next couple of weeks uh, even local elections 
uh, in, well, sorry, the next three weeks in New South Wales. So, uh, yeah, I know that, Albert, and I feel exactly the same. If my child died from a vaccine and no, nobody could shut me up, my child was injured by a vaccine and I haven't shut my mouth for 27 years. Um, but uh, there are people, I think that a lot of people, when something like that happens to their child, and I've never lost a child, and I pray to God that I never do, uh, I want to live to be 150 years old, and I want to die 150 years before any of my children do. Um, but I know that if I lost a child, it is possible that I would be so devastated and in such a situation of grief that it might take me a long time to actually uh, come out of it. So... Um, it's, it's really, really hard. I don't want to judge anyone, but I do want to urge, and I'm glad you raised that issue because, again, I need people who know people who've had reactions to please make an appointment. Go to our website, avn.org.au. Click on the picture of the vaxxed bus and make an appointment to tell your story on the vaxxed bus. It's all done virtually right now. I am really hoping that we'll be able to get the bus back out on the road in the next few weeks. Um, I'd love to have it out uh, before Christmas, if at all possible. So uh, it's, uh, it's one of those things. We, we have a lot of people booking in to tell stories, and then they chicken out at the last minute. And I don't know what they're afraid of, honestly, because your story, aside from the fact that when you tell your story on the bus, you feel you feel surrounded with love, you feel supported, you feel heard, where so many people in society don't want to listen to these stories. You feel all those things, but your story can save a life. And if it saves even one life, isn't it worth doing it? So I can't beg you enough. Please go to our website, click on the Vaxxed Bus picture, and book in to tell your story. It doesn't matter if people believe it or not, Albert. It really doesn't. You believe it. I believe it. And the people who are watching this will believe it. We need to tell our stories because our stories are powerful. And aside from saving lives, they can actually change the way that things run in Australia. So, oh, Mary Rose, I am so, so sorry. And I know so many families who have that situation as well. I, I, you know, as you saw with uh, Dr. McCullough, he said that uh, that if if it hasn't happened within a short time, he doesn't think it's going to happen. So I'm praying that all those people who took those jabs uh, and are not injured straight away will be okay. So, um, yeah. All right, guys. Yeah, the and, and what we have to hope, Mary Rose, is that even though they're double jabbed. They won't give in and take the boosters when they come along. So let's pray that they're okay after the double jab and that they will not take the booster doses. Um, because as I said, Australia has uh, contracted to buy 10 doses of vaccine for every man, woman, and child in Australia. Um, and Susan, you're very right. The more people who speak up, will encourage more and more to come forward. The truth will save lives. And we have no trouble getting people to come to the bus to tell their stories. I don't know why people won't tell their stories online. So we need to get people to book in and tell their stories. It doesn't hurt. <laughs> You'll actually feel good afterwards. And we need you to come forward and be brave. All right. Uh, yes, Gerard Rennick, I love that man. 
absolutely love that man, Michelle. He's he's. If anybody saw his questions in Senate estimates, I'm not a violent person. <laughs> I'm going to preface it by saying that I am not a violent person. But when I heard Skerritt from the TGA lying <laughs> to Rennick, I truly wanted to smack him. <laughs> like my mother would have done to me when I was a naughty kid, um, you know, just to say, don't lie, shut up, don't lie, tell the truth, you know, tell the truth, it'll set you free, so um, yeah, it was, he's, he's great, I hadn't heard about him until a few days ago, and he's fantastic, so guys, guys, it's almost 9.30, um, <laughs> Oh, when? <laughs> dear, oh dear. She said she's heard me swear. I, I, I've never sworn. I don't think I've ever sworn much. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it does get to me sometimes. So uh, I, will, I will definitely admit to that I have sworn. And I have, like Jimmy Carter said, where he said he lusted in his heart after women, I have, I have felt in my heart that I wanted to smack certain government officials upside the head for telling lies and, and hurting people. So, um, all right. I am going to say good night all. I hope to see you at the next Under the Wire on Sunday night. I hope to see you on Sunday morning at Unite, the, uh, sorry, Unite in White, Reclaim the Line. And I hope that you all stay safe, stay healthy, and stay active. Take care and good night from us here at Under the Wire. See you.